started in Acts chapter 2 last week, and we'll continue on. And in Acts chapter 2, it says, in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered together in one place, but suddenly there came from, from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Okay, so it's interesting if you look at the, the format here, and, and remember what we had talked about in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, is an historical book, very difficult to ever try to set doctrine from a historical book. We don't set doctrine from, from a book such as this. We, uh, we, we actually, uh, we can look at it and see the events that took place, but we, we get our doctrine from the teachings in the Scriptures that were specifically written to teach the churches. So we have lots of that in the New Testament. And we'll see what happens and, and why that is. Because in Acts chapter 1, these were the, the, the folks who were in the upper room, they obviously believed... And at this point, they're now getting baptized in the Spirit. And we know that because if, if just keep your finger there and turn over to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, it actually clarifies what took place on that occasion. And you could hear, you, you could see what Peter said about that event. In Acts chapter 11, verse 16, it says, And I remembered the word of the Lord... How he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the gift as he gave to us also, after believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was, who, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So in other words, Peter is reflecting back to this event in Acts chapter 1. He's saying, after we believed, we received the Holy Spirit. We were baptized in the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit took place in Acts chapter 1, after they believed on the Lord. Now, if you look in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, right after this event, Peter is going to get up and he, and he preaches some, and we'll look at that uh, over, the, over the probably next time or, or some later today. But he says in verse 37, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Now when those who heard this, heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, each one of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So look at the order there. He says, Repent, be baptized, be baptized in water, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the order there is repentance, water baptism, receipt of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, the order was believe and then baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look over in Acts chapter 8, there's actually a, 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 another occurrence here. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, it says, But when they believed, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So you see in Acts chapter 8, they believed, and then they were baptized. That's baptism in water. But the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come. 
in, in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So you see what happens here in Acts chapter 8. They believe, then they're baptized in water, and then they receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. So in Acts chapter 1, there was no laying on of hands. They believed, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they started speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 2, it says, Peter said, repent, then get water baptized, then you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And when they received the Holy Spirit, none of them started speaking in tongues. That was in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter chapter 8, it says they believed, then they were water baptized, and then they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. In Acts chapter 2, we never saw the laying on of hands. In Acts chapter 1, we never saw the laying on of hands. In Acts chapter 8, we see that. But there's no speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 8. Then you go to Acts chapter 10... Acts chapter 10, if you, if you look uh, what happens to, to the people in Acts chapter 10, verse uh, 44. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. So look, you don't even hear open repentance. They were just listening to the message. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. So you see in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit didn't ask them, just boom, fell on them while they were listening to the message. Nor did they even ask. They were just listening. Now they may well have believed, but there's no specific statement about it. Just boom, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Then... They started speaking in tongues. And then in verse 47 of Acts chapter 10, Surely no one can refuse water baptism for those who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. So you see, they receive the Holy Spirit, they start speaking in tongues, and then they're baptized in water. And then in Acts chapter 19, is one final occurrence of this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19... Reading from verse 1, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, and he said Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John's baptism, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So you see that what happens in Acts chapter 19, they believe, then they believe, then they're water baptized, and then the Spirit comes upon them through the laying on of hands, and then they start speaking in tongues. 
So we've got Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. Every one of them is a little bit different on the order and what takes place. Three of them involve tongues, two of them don't. What doctrine would you like to build now? What way do you want to go? How does this occur? Maybe we should start five different churches for the five different ways it took place and say this is the Acts chapter 1 church, this is the Acts chapter 2 church, this is the Acts chapter 8 church, and so on. You see, you can't build doctrine from this book. It was never intended to do so. This is an historical book. Events took place. It never says in the New Testament, this is the way you got to do it, specifically doing this way. The order that we actually see is that there's belief. Belief results in receipt of the Holy Spirit. And then tongues may or may not come as a gift later. But we can't take events from this book and say that's the way it is because we'll only be taking one set. I guarantee you, you'll find another set. You'll find another way. So what we do is we look at doctrinal statements that were put forth by the apostles later on. And the apostles were a very select group of people. There were the twelve. And we saw last time the, the, how the twelve had to be chosen. When, when, when Judas died, they said that, that uh, Matthias had to be chosen because there were only two men that, that, that uh, uh, were capable of being chosen. One was Joseph and one was Matthias. And it says that, that they had to uh, have been there since the baptism of John, since John was baptizing with the disciples the whole time, through the ascension, through the witnessing of Jesus and his ascension. Of the 120 people in the upper room, only two fit that role. And, and through the drawing of lots, which was sanctioned in that time because the Holy Spirit had not yet come, they chose Matthias. He became the twelfth. There were other apostles that the scriptures talk about. It talks about Paul being an apostle. Barnabas was an apostle. James was an apostle. So there are at least three other apostles in the, in the, in the scriptures, James being the brother of the Lord. And it says the requirement for them was they had to have seen the Lord risen from the dead with their own eyes. Paul actually didn't see him during his, fir- his first 40 days here. He appeared to Paul on the road to Demaeus, and that's why in Acts chapter 9, Paul says, didn't I see the Lord? Am I not an apostle? He justifies his apostleship based on his seeing of the Lord. We don't have any evidence, we don't know when the time was that that Barnabas saw the Lord, but it says that Barnabas was indeed an apostle, and the apostles saw the Lord. So it was a select group, group of people, there were 12, there were at least another three. And through them, we have our teachings and our doctrine. And you see why the Scripture is very selective on who it calls apostles? Because through the apostles comes our doctrine of what we're supposed to follow. And if you can just name anybody an apostle, then you can have a lot of willy-nilly doctrine coming forth. And it has to come forth very, very carefully. So, the, the Bible actually was very specific And now, who was it that was speaking in tongues back in Acts chapter 2? Who was it that was speaking in tongues? Generally, generally in the New Testament, what what the Greek does is if it doesn't specifically name who the people are, it goes back to the people that it previously named. So in Acts chapter 1, it says, And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and they were added to, he was added to the eleven apostles. So Matthias became the twelfth. 
And he was named among them. And then it says the Spirit fell upon these people. Did the Spirit fall upon just the twelve, or did the Spirit fall upon the 120? And were the twelve the only ones speaking in tongues? That's the key. Were the twelve the only ones speaking in tongues, or was it the 120 that were speaking? And if you, if you go over, and it says, it says uh, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and began to speak. So somehow, it may well have only been the twelve that were speaking in tongues that very day, because it says, Peter taking his stand with the eleven. And then again in verse 37 of that same chapter. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? So they're not saying to the 120, Brethren, what shall we do? They're very specifically saying to the twelve apostles, what shall we do? Not only that, it says that when they were speaking in in Acts chapter 2 verse 7, it says, they were amazed and astonished saying, what are all these who are speaking? Why, why, I'm sorry, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So we know that at least of the eleven apostles, they were all Galileans. Matthias may well have been a Galilean, and and they hear them, and they they recognize them as being Galileans because of their accent. Could 120 of them, all 120 in the upper room, have been Galileans? Less likely. But again, we don't know for sure, but it may have only been the twelve. That doesn't at all exclude other people from speaking in tongues. We get teachings... In, in, there's three different teachings about the, the dealing of tongues in the epistles, and it very precisely talks about what it is and how it's supposed to be used. And some people say it's not for today. Well, then why do we have all these teachings about it? Very specifically. But the order that it's used, the way that it's used, is actually quite different than, than the way it's often used. And this, again, was a very specific language they were hearing it. It was not the repetition of a few syllables. They were hearing preaching in the Word of God. So this is what we see. We see this coming forth. Now in in verse 12 it says, of Acts chapter 2, And they were continued to be amazed and perplexed, saying, What does this mean? Remember, there was one group of people It says they were devout people. It says that in Jerusalem there were devout people hearing this. And devout people, that was the same word that was used by Luke, speaking of Simeon, a devout man. So it says that in Jerusalem there were devout people. You, you see in uh, verse 5, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. So there was a group of devout people, and there were also people there who weren't very devout. We know there was a group of devout people because they were here for the Feast of Weeks, which took place 50 days after the, after the Passover, during the Pentecost. The first day of the Feast of Weeks was Pentecost. They had to be there. The devout Jews were told to be there. And so they, in verse 12, are perplexed, and they're saying, what does this mean? They recognize it as having some spiritual meaning. The other group says, in verse 13, but others were mocking, saying they're full of sweet wine. Two groups hear the same message. Devout people hear it and recognize something of God. Other people are mockers and they, re- they say, oh, these guys are just drunk. And they hear the word of God being preached in their own language and they say they're drunk. 
So what we have here is we have two groups of people, and as we talked about last time, remember, based on our level of devotion to God, we will either recognize His hand in our life or we will not recognize it. Based on our level of devotion. If we're set aside and and spending time with God, we recognize His hand. If we don't spend time with God, we don't recognize His hand, and we become cynical about everything that happens in life. And if you're devout and seeking God, you can even have tragedy then the whole thing reverts back to God. And we start talking about God and His goodness and His mercies and His kindness, even in the midst of tragedy. And then if we're not devoted to God, even good things take place and we're spitting and cursing because it's not good enough. And that's just the way our sinful nature is. And so it should move us to spend time with God because one group says, there's God here. We don't understand quite what it is, but there's some message here. What's the meaning of this? And the other group is mocking. And so Peter takes his stand in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. Taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So the first thing that Peter does, remember, it's Peter who's speaking because Peter was given the keys. He's opening the door now for the message to come to the Jews. After this, he'll open the door for the message to come to the Samaritans. And that's why we read in Acts chapter 8, Philip couldn't bring down the Holy Spirit until, until uh, Peter came. And after Peter came, no one ever had to go open the, the, the old Holy Spirit to the Samaritans because it was already open. And then in Acts chapter 10, even though Paul was chosen before Acts chapter 10, he was chosen as the apostle for the Gentiles. He never was able to open the door of witness to the Gentiles until Acts chapter 10. The door for the Gentiles is open through Peter, because Jesus said, you're going to have the keys to open and to close. You do it first in Jerusalem, then uh, Samaria, and then to the Gentiles, the uttermost part of the earth. He opens the door in Acts chapter 10, and then boom, in Acts chapter 11, Paul can begin his ministry. He's opening now the door to the Jews. And he first appeals to them based on tradition in Acts chapter 15. He says, they're not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. It is not the tradition of Jews to be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. Jews do their drinking at night. He says, it's not that they're going to be drunk in the morning. He, so he appeals to them first just on, on, on the basis of their tradition. He says, how could it be that they're drunk? It's nine o'clock in the morning. In fact, the Jews had a morning sacrifice that took place at nine a.m. Before the, the morning sacrifice, there was no drinking. So just appealing to them based on their tradition. And then he goes on and he starts looking to the scriptures. Because who are the people who are going to respond to the scriptures? It's the devout people. People who are not devout don't respond to the scriptures. You use the scriptures to witness forth to, to, to people who are devout, who have some some desire to understand something from the Scriptures. There's, there's some level of devotion here that he's reflecting back to something that was prophesied. And he says in Acts chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, and it, verse 16, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and on your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall, shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. And in those days, 
I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And, I shall, and, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over to the, pre, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So what does he do? He starts quoting from the prophet Joel. Now the prophet Joel is actually speaking of the end times. The sun did not become dark on that day. There wasn't, the, the, the moon did not turn into blood. This is exactly what says it's going to happen and talks about in the book of Revelation. This is then the end times. What he's citing is what is going to happen in the end times. All of Israel will get saved, it says. All of Israel will get saved. But what he's doing is he's using this as an analogy. He says what's going to happen in the end times, a little foretaste is happening today where the Spirit is being poured out, not on all Israel, but on all these people you see here. That's what he's talking about. He's making reference to this. And then he says, <clears throat> he says, Jesus, who was attested to you by God through signs and wonders and miracles in your very midst, and you yourselves know it, this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. Look what he does. He takes, you know, many of these people didn't even live in Jerusalem except during that period. If they had come down for the feast of the Passover, then they stayed there waiting 50 days for the feast of weeks to begin. Many of them lived in these tent cities. But he says, you put him to death. And I'm telling you that you will see throughout the scriptures... Right now, he puts it on the Jews, and then he puts it on the Gentiles. Every one of us has put Jesus on the cross. And if we think we didn't, then we need to spend time with God, and God will show us that it is our sin. It is my sin that put Jesus there. And what he does, is he says to them, it is because of you that this man, Jesus, was put upon the cross. Yes, there was a predetermined plan. There was a foreknowledge, uh, a foreknowledge of God. And, and, you know, some people have asked me, if, if these are predetermined, you, you know, what can we, how can we do otherwise? You know, how, how, how could anyone function otherwise in this? And I'll show you a portion that, that really helps me. I don't know if it will help you to, to, to help to understand something about uh, uh, foreknowledge and this, this, this predetermination thing. If you look in, 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 in uh, Romans chapter 8, look in Romans chapter 8 and... Uh, Look in, in verse 29. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. So look at the order here. In Acts chapter 8, verse 29. Uh, I'm sorry. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. It was Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. So prior to predestination comes foreknowledge. You say, well, how can that be? First of all, God lives outside of time. For all of you who now got your degrees in science, you understand that that time is just a dimension. Extract yourself from the dimension of time, and you're outside of that. That's where God is. He lives outside of time. When you live outside of the dimension of time, you see the past, the present, and the future all at once. It's all there before you. It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Foreknowledge comes before predestination. He knows what our response is going to be. Based on that foreknowledge, he predestines. And based on that predestination, he calls. And based on that calling, he justifies. And based on that justification, he glorifies. So God knows everything about what our response is going to be. And based on that response, he predestines. But based on foreknowledge. Does that help at all? Does it? Maybe, maybe you've never thought about these things. Ever wonder about this? Predestination, you've never thought about that and wondered about it? Baptists don't wonder much about that. They just figure they've got to be at it, Right? All right. Anyway, if you ever start wondering about it, go to that verse and it becomes clear. So he puts it on them. He just zeroes right in on them in Acts chapter 2 and he says, you, he says, you're responsible. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. And you put him to death. Look what he does. He just, boom, right there. And he says, but God raised him up. And then he starts quoting specifically. This isn't just a relation. This is is the exact preaching that's taking place from this psalm. This is in Psalm chapter 16, starting in verse 25 of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 25. For David said, I saw the Lord always in my presence, and He is at my right hand that I would not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will dwell in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. So you see what he says in verse 27. He says, you won't allow your Holy One to undergo decay. This is an exact prophecy with an exact fulfillment in Jesus. This is not fulfilled in a normal human being. When my uncle died, I come from a Jewish family. When my uncle died, I went to the funeral... And the rabbi started reading Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is this verse 25 through 28, and it's longer than that. It's about, it's about 16 verses, something like that. Psalm 16, he started reading over my grandfather, uh, over my uncle, while his body was right there laying in the grave. We had just set his casket into the grave. And he starts reading Psalm 16, and I'm thinking, he's going to get stuck here. He's going to get stuck. Because you can't read Psalm 16 and get to this verse that says, 
You will not, uh, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You can't read this over a human being and have it make any sense because you know that that body is about to begin to rot there. And I had already memorized Psalm 16 with my family. I didn't have my Bible with me. He was reading his scriptures. But I knew what was coming. And I was wondering, how is he going to handle it? How is he going to stand there and read a verse over my uncle, applying it to my uncle and saying, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And he got to that verse, and there was a pause, and he skipped it. He looked at it. He skipped it and started reading on from the next verse. He skipped it. I knew he was going to have trouble. You can't read this over a normal human being. And afterward, on my way back to the airport, I called him. And I said, you, you know, you, you skipped a verse reading that psalm because that psalm was prophetic concerning the Messiah. You can't read that over a, hu- a normal human being and have it apply in any way. I said, you skipped a verse. He said, did I? I said, yes, you did. He says, well, you know, my eyes aren't so good anymore. <laughs> this is concerning Jesus. And so what happens here is Peter takes this and says, you know this psalm that you've thought about all this time? This is concerning the Messiah. This is the Messiah that you've read about, that you've always longed for. This is the Messiah. You killed the Messiah, the one you always longed for. In verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made Him both Lord and Christ, This Jesus whom you crucified. Enough now. Quit saying it. And Peter just hit him again and again and again. You killed him. You killed the Messiah. You did it. Think about this. You want to think about the impact on a person's life by hearing this? You want to know the impact? Think about, um, since since you're young people mostly and and, and, uh, you don't have children yet, think about it as if... um, you hear some rustling in your home in the middle of the night. And, you know, you pull out your handgun because you're all Texans and, and you hear this rustling around and there's this figure coming toward you who just walked in the door and you shoot this person. And you turn on the light and you find out it's your father you just shot. Imagine how that would feel. Or fathers, that you shoot your son who just happens to be visiting from college and didn't want, wanted to surprise you and didn't tell you that he was coming, just wanted to surprise you. Imagine the impact. I've killed my father. I've killed my son. You know, it wasn't an accident in the sense of, you know, we got in a car accident together, I was driving. No, it was that I took a gun and I shot. I didn't realize it was my father. I didn't realize it was my son. But nevertheless, imagine the impact on your heart. It's not like, oh, well, I didn't mean to, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) No, it means a lot. This is the impact. These Jews were waiting for the Messiah since they were little kids. They were always told, Messiah is going to come. Messiah is going to come. He's going to set us free. He's going to set our nation free. Messiah is going to come. And then they find out that in their generation... All the generations have been waiting for Messiah from, from the time it was prophesied in the book of Isaiah from 750 B.C. it was prophesied. And in fact, if you really look back at it, it was prophesied from Genesis, though it wasn't that clear in the book of Genesis to them. It was prophesied that Messiah would come and they are the generation that killed the Messiah. This is the impact. 
You have killed a family member and He keeps reminding you, you killed Him! You killed Him! And that's why they say in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. This word pierced is the same word that that Homer used in in the Iliad, the, the, the Greek writer. And he used it for the pounding of horse hooves on stone when they were running. Just this, this deep pounding. They were pounded to the heart. Peter just pounded this into them. You killed the Messiah. They were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what do we do? This would be our response. I've killed my child. What do I do? I've killed my father. What do I do? And his reply is, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. It starts with repentance. You want to know what to do? You repent. You want to know what to do in life if you don't know the Lord? You've always wondered, do I know the Lord? Maybe I don't. You know, repent. Repent. Repent just that doesn't mean that you just feel sorry for your sin. Lots of people feel sorry for their sin. You go to prison, you do prison ministry, lots of people feel sorry for their sin. Repentance means there's a turning. There's a commitment to go another way. You repent. You, return, you turn from your sin and you go the other way. And you're to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're to repent, you're to turn, and you're to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you receive the Holy Spirit. This is what you do. And repentance isn't just for the unbeliever coming to the Lord. In that event in coming to the Lord, believing that He is Lord, believing that He's risen from the dead, and repenting, then comes the Holy Spirit. But repentance is actually the way of life for the believer. That we realize that we have blown it. What do we do? Brethren, what is the answer? What is the answer to all of this? I've gone my own way. I've blown this. And the story of my life, my life is constant asking forgiveness of God and turning from my wicked ways. And as soon as I think I've got it, I see the wickedness of my own heart and I have to repent and say, God, forgive me. This is the way of life for the believer. In, in, in the book of Proverbs, it, it talks about how correction and reproof are the way of life. This is the way of life for the believer. So if you ever feel that you've got it, you, you graduated, you've got your degree now, now you're set and you know about Jesus. No! Repent from that feeling. It's the way of life for the believer. And we blow it in life many times. Many times. Men blow it. Women blow it. We blow it in life. We, 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 we're wrong in the way we treat our parents. We're wrong in the way we treat our children. And there's a repenting and a returning and saying, I'm sorry for what I have done. It becomes a way of life for the believer. This repentance that he is speaking of is the repentance unto salvation. And once we have salvation, we have got it. The Holy Spirit comes. It is different than the filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit we see comes again and again and again for certain situations. It means we're under the control of the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit falls once upon us. And this is the pattern that we will see. 
We don't get rebaptized and rebaptized in the Holy Spirit. This comes on the day of salvation. And if you've never been there, you need to be there. There needs to come a time when you receive the Lord. And then there's a baptism that occurs. And we will see doctrinally the baptism, water baptism, follows the act of, of belief and repentance and infilling and baptism in the Holy Spirit. Then comes water baptism. But water baptism is a necessary step. And believers who don't want to be water baptized for one reason or another often gets down to pride. Well, you know, I've been a Christian this long and I've never been water baptized and what are people going to think? Well, swallow your pride, repent of your pride, turn and get water baptized. There will always be something between you and accomplishing things in your life spiritually, if you've not been water baptized. Because the Scriptures commanded water baptism. And I don't see anywhere in the Scriptures where it was sprinkling. They took them and they got into the water. And so it couldn't have been a little cup. Because you had to get in it. And so there was this, this, this whole principle of baptism which was this, came from the dyeing industry where they would dye things. But there will always be this blockage there because it was an act that they were to fulfill. And don't wait until you're an old man and an old woman and finally say, yeah, I really need to be baptized. Be baptized now. Be baptized. After believing. And if you say, well, I was baptized when I was born. Well, you didn't believe. After believing, be baptized. If you want to know what the doctrinal order is, which we will cover at some point, it is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. After believing, you are to be baptized. At the instant of believing, you are, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You may not be that filled for certain situations yet, but you're baptized in the Spirit, and then you're to be baptized. And then you'll be ready for the service of the Lord. Don't try to go into the service of the Lord without baptism, because you're standing in a, in a main way of disobedience. Walk in baptism. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You, Lord God, for the truth of Your Word. And Father, I pray that You just come upon these precious people here in this room. Father, for those who are graduating who haven't yet gone home but are here with us again for their, their last time, Father, I pray that You bless them and send them off safely and let them walk in You and in Your ways. Father, I pray for these young people that they would take hold in their hearts and so be filled with the Holy Spirit for all the things that are before them. And Lord, for any here that may not know You, Father, I pray that they'd be moved to repentance because they killed the Messiah. They killed the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is only one solution, and that is repentance. Bring them, Lord, to the point of repentance. And Lord, thank you for the message of the gospel. In the name of Jesus. Amen.